The following presentation is a Barrett Sports Media production. He's connected. Jason Barrett says, I'd like to see you here. The answer is when, where, what do you need? Respected. He's got a long and distinguished career in the sports radio business. Truly one of the titans of our industry. And unequivocally invested. This is the place to be if you're in the sports business. He is Jason Barrett. And this is the Jason Barrett Podcast. Now bringing you in-depth conversations with the best and brightest in sports media. And shedding light on the industry's biggest opportunities and challenges. Here's the president of Barrett Media, Jason Barrett. Thanks for stopping by to check out the Jason Barrett Podcast. I am Jason Barrett, battling a little bit today as I've been on the road and usually when I'm away for a few days sleeping in a hotel, the body sometimes can get a little uh, beat up and so trying to navigate a cold here. So apologies in advance if I sound a little less than energetic. On today's show, I'm excited to welcome ESPN standout Mina Kimes to the program. Similar to many of you, I've followed her career the past few years, but we've never had a chance to chat about the sports media industry, so I've got plenty to toss in her direction, and I'll do that in just a few moments. If you follow Barrett Sports Media, then you're likely aware we'll be hosting our annual Sports Media Industry Conference on March 21st and 22nd in Los Angeles. We just announced four more speakers this week for the 2023 BSM Summit, and I've got more still to come, so stay tuned. If you're looking for tickets or to reserve your room, everything is posted on bsmsummit.com. If you're looking to be a sponsor or to pitch a guest, my email, jbarrett at sportsradiopd.com. As we do each show, I like to gander at some of the developments taking place across the industry, and we unpack it in a feature that I like to call What I've Seen or Heard. Attention! Attention! Have I got your attention now? Before I dive into today's topic, I want to extend a congratulations. Chris Mandog Russo, Jeff Smullyan, and Susan Waldman are all being inducted into the Radio Hall of Fame this week. The work Chris has done for decades, both locally and nationally on radio and television, to deliver impact and entertain audiences, combined with the way that Susan blazed the trail for women to excel in sports radio and play-by-play, and not to mention Chef's willingness to take a risk and launch the sports format and stick with the format when it made little financial sense to do so, Those are big reasons why all three deserve to be honored. I look forward to being in attendance for their special night. But now let's address the big story in sports radio this week. WIP revealed who will take over the morning show in 2023, and I absolutely love the move. PD Rod Lakin has been in Philly for just over a year, and his first order of business was to find the path forward for WIP, without the market's most successful talent of three decades, Angelo Cataldi. Sometimes in these spots, programmers can't resist the urge to put their prints on a brand or gravitate to what they've experienced elsewhere, rather than reading the signs in a local market. But my friend Rod Lakin didn't make that mistake. He took his time, looked at the possibilities, likely bent Spike Eskin's ear a time or two, and in the end, 
elevated the midday team of Joe DeCamera and John Ritchie. These guys have not only delivered for the station in middays, but they've grown as talent and as a team. Nobody is Angelo Cataldi, but I think they'll continue to help WIP compete strongly in morning drive. Now, I was on the road when the announcement was made, and I made a point to stream it because I was hoping to hear Joe and John get the call. When I learned that they were, I was excited for all involved. First, Rod and I have known each other for over a decade. We actually almost wound up working together on a client station five, six years ago. He's a really good guy who's smart, strategic, willing to listen, doesn't show his hand, and he's not overly emotional. That was needed with this decision. If WIP rolled the dice and hired the wrong show, they could have done years of damage to the brand. Though Rod told BSM's Derek Futterman this week that he didn't feel the enormity of the decision until after it was made, I'm sure that many around him reminded him this was critical in the type of decision that can either make or break your career. In the end, I think he got it right. And the reason I feel that way is simple. Joe DeCamera. John Ritchie is a big part of this show too. I don't want that to get lost in my commentary. His personality and the ex-player point of view help him stand out a lot on that radio station. But the biggest compliment that I can give him is that Joe DeCamera is in this spot today because John Ritchie rubbed off on him. Joe and I worked together in 2006 when 97.5 The Fanatic didn't even exist. The station at that time was on the AM dial, billed as Sports Talk 950, and it wasn't set up well. We had national shows on the air. The imaging was weak and out of touch. Even some of our talent were in the wrong positions. Before I even got in the door, I got a six-page email from Joe covering every pro and con about the radio station. I still have the email to this day. Some in my role might have been turned off because there was a lot of detail in it and we hadn't even met yet. But I loved how much the guy cared and the attention to detail that he put into his words. When I got to town, we immediately hit it off. He became someone I liked, trusted, respected, and wanted to work with and help. He also had great passion for the local market and the local teams, which is now a big part of his on-air success. Back then, Joe, though, hadn't become a personality. He was a sports radio talk show host. And I knew that there was a lot of great potential there, but it had to be untapped. And I tried to do a little bit of that during my short stay when I paired him on Saturdays with John Cruck. I knew he would learn from him. Years later, Joe was paired with Ron Jaworski, Darren Dalton, and many others. And now here we are today, and he's partners with an ex-athlete with a ton of personality, and they're about to become the face of morning drive on WIP. As I mentioned, I wasn't in Philly long, but Joe and I remain friends today. In fact, when John Ritchie was up for the midday job in 2016, and Joe was thinking about moving over there, we talked. I gave John an endorsement because he was doing call-ins for me in 2015 at 95.7 the game in San Francisco, and I thought he had a great personality. That being said, John was very football-focused and not strong at baseball back then. So I told Joe that if he looked at it as an opportunity to grow as a host, 
by working with someone who could bring out different parts of his game while also helping John get stronger at baseball, then they could develop something good. Here we are years later, and because of the great work that Spike Eskin did with those guys to help them embrace their roles and develop a show identity, and the job that Rod Lakin is doing with them now to get them ready for the next step in mornings, they're in position to be difference makers. Although there are many positives, including the way Angelo Cataldi handled this process, I thought the way he passed the baton on the air last week to Joe and John was very classy. That's a really tough spot to be in for a show if they don't have Angelo's support. Angelo has been great throughout the entire process. But there is one part of this story that makes me scratch my head and go, what if? In 2016... Joe DeCamera was hosting nights on 97.5 The Fanatic. John Marks was at the station, too, contributing to Anthony Gargano's morning show. Each had been with the station for years, both were under 40, and they were built to be future stars. But by the fall of 2016, WIP landed both. Spike Eskin wanted to reset WIP, and he made two strong moves to get that brand back on track. The Fanatic at that time didn't see it as a big loss, but I knew it wasn't good. DeCamera was thriving at night, and he hadn't been tried in middays, even though the station was inconsistent in that time slot and had changed the number of hosts. Marks, meanwhile, had hosted middays, but he was now in a character role on the morning show, and he felt he had more to offer. Here we are six years later, and they'll both soon be the faces of WIP's morning and afternoon drive time shows. To be fair, the Fanatic has remained strong. They added John Kincaid in mornings, which was an excellent move. Anthony Gargano shifted to middays, where he's remained competitive, and afternoons were long led by Mike Missinelli before the station changed course a few months ago. What's ironic, the loss of the camera and marks to WIP helped the Fanatic learn a valuable lesson on the importance of promoting from within. And they did that when they gave Tyrone Johnson and Hunter Brody their shot in the afternoons, adding Ricky Batalico to the mix as well. If there's a message or two to take away from this, it's simple. If you want something bad, go after it and understand that landing your dream job takes time. Joe DeCamera has been at this for 20 years. He's the heart and soul of Philadelphia sports. And he's soon going to advance to a different level when he moves into morning drive, taking Angelo Cataldi's seat. Nobody cares how long it takes to get there, only what you do with the opportunity once you arrive. And that's now the challenge that Joe and John have before them. Last but not least, sometimes the best moves you can make are the easy ones right in front of your face. Maybe they won't be seen as revolutionary, but if the ultimate goal is success, I'd rather lean on people who deliver results, excite the building, excite the audience, and possess the qualities needed to win than sit on an island hoping the lab experiment I invested in doesn't blow up in my face. Well done, sir. Tell me, guys, what do you think of WIP's new morning show? Would love to hear your input. You can get me by email, jbarrett at sportsradiopd.com, or as always, you can hit me up on the socials. Now it's time for this week's conversation, and it's with ESPN's Mina Kimes. 
whether it's been on TV as an analyst on NFL Live, as a contributor to Around the Horn, Highly Questionable, or the Dan Lebitard Show, or in the podcasting space as host of ESPN Daily, there's something about Mina that just makes her fun to listen to. She's smart, prepared, funny, likable, and extremely relatable, and I think you'll hear even more of that on display during this next discussion. Yo, listen! Mina, I want to start off with your love affair with the Seattle Seahawks because I knew we were going to be chatting and I'm looking into your background and I go, she was born in Omaha, lived in Michigan, lived in Virginia, California, Arizona, went to school in Connecticut, worked in New York, now lives in LA. (laughs) Nowhere in there is Seattle, Washington. I know your dad was a fan. How did you manage to stay invested, though, in a team when you don't get the opportunity to go down the road and see them in person? When you grow up a military brat like me, my dad was in the Air Force, um, your family kind of becomes the connective fiber between everything, where you live. I mean, I, you know, your closest friends, uh, the people that you talk to the most. And because of that, my dad being a crazy Seattle sports fan, not just Seahawks, Mariners, Sonics, UW, all of it growing up, naturally, he just kind of passed those allegiances on to me. So whenever we moved, wherever we went, we carried that with us and I've carried it into adulthood. Do you still check in on the scene on local sports radio, whether it be (laughs) 710 ESPN, KJR, a mix of the two? I do, yeah. Every now and then I'll jump on 710. Um, Stacy Rost is a good friend, and um, I have a lot of pals there from over the years. You know, I grew up listening to Seattle radio. I've told Mike Sock, Brock and Sock, I used to always listen to. That <laughs> <laughs> uh, was uh, not, not that long ago, but um, yeah, there's a lot of really, really great local reporters, so I've always enjoyed listening to them. So how much flack then did you take from family and friends when you get contacted by the Rams to start doing preseason <laughs> TV? Because they got to be like, they're in the same division. Family and friends less so because they like what it does for me from a business standpoint. Right, right. They understand. Uh, Seahawks fans, though, have given me some grief about <laughs> it. But, I, but throughout it all, you know, I've pretty clearly maintained my rooting interest, so... When you're working on a game broadcast where you have to react in the moment to plays that are happening, you have to look at situations that are developing in real time versus when you're working on a studio show, you've got time to plan conversations. And yeah, you may organically respond to what someone says, but you kind of know what the subject matter is. How does your preparation going into a game broadcast differ from what you do on NFL Live? Well, you know, so the games that I have been able to do are preseason games, which makes it all very, very different because, as you know, I'm sure from watching preseason broadcasts, um, the game action, well, it matters less than during yep. the regular season. Um, you know, things like who's going to make the roster competition uh, and sort of broader trends and discussions do tend to matter. So when you watch the game, I'm watching, to, obviously, to think of observations on the game action, but I'm also thinking, okay, well, how does this action impact whether or not this player might make the team as he fought his way onto the 53. And I think even something like special teams matters more in the preseason right? Than, because most of those guys, especially in the Rams, are playing for those spots. So I would say your priorities are a little bit different, and I try to be attuned to the things that might matter the most to fans of that team watching. Before your career with ESPN took off, you worked for, I think I was reading, Fortune Small Business Magazine and Bloomberg News, right? 
Uh, that's right, in Fortune, yeah. Right. So those jobs are obviously different from doing daily sports television, which is fun and react in the moment, talk about issues. You're doing investigative journalism at some of these places. Did you enjoy that part of the business? And what made you want to get into that side before you wound up down this road? So I did enjoy it, but it was also very difficult. <laughs> and uh, especially being sort of a non-confrontational business uh, person, pardon me, it is the most confrontational job in journalism. It's a lot of cold calls, getting yelled at, um, <laughs> getting yelled at by lawyers, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, you know, so it wasn't something I ever dreamed of. In fact, I, I thought I might write about the arts coming out of college. I didn't even think I'd be a business journalist, but um, I ended up being placed through an internship program at Fortune Small Business for my first job. And then from there, after going to Fortune, I started off writing about finance uh, during the financial crisis. And in that process, started talking to editors about doing stories of a more serious digging type nature. And I received my first investigative assignment. I must have been like 2010 or something. It was about Johnson & Johnson, which was having recalls at the time. Uh, and then it's kind of those things where once you do one, if it works, if you get the answers that you're looking for, you kind of catch the bug, I guess. Um, yeah. It's so rewarding. And yeah, from there, I just kept doing it for several years. When you were in school and you're thinking about going into the media side of the business, did you have any personal influences, whether it be writers or broadcasters, whether it be on TV or radio? Yeah, I just loved long form magazine writers. You know, I grew up reading The New Yorker in Arizona, subscribing mm -hmm. as a high schooler. <laughs> um, some of the great writers at Sports Illustrated over the years. Um, so, you know, I, I always wanted to write long magazine stories and, you know, getting to do that at a pretty young age was just a dream, honestly, first about business and then eventually about sports when I moved. So to like you were probably a Grantland reader then, because I think they had a mandate that anything under 8,000 <laughs> words didn't get on the site, right? So I love Grantland. And that's how I was introduced to one of my favorite writers who became a really good friend of mine, Bill Barnwell, who I think is the best football writer in America. Yeah. You look at ESPN, you know, when it comes to being able to do reporting. I mean, you just saw the story about a week ago on Daniel Snyder. The, oh, yeah. the content they do is just tremendous. How much do they ask you? Do you want to dabble in some investigative work? <laughs> do you want to do an E60 piece? Or do they say, listen, you've got such a good place right now. We're not messing with that. Yeah, so I don't really write that much anymore. The last time I wrote was last summer. I did a profile of Justin Herbert, but that kind of just ended up working out with the timing. I, it was during the summer. Um there was some access there, so I was able to just fly up to Oregon and interview him. But for the most part, I would say starting about three years ago, I shifted off writing. Um, and now my schedule is pretty stacked with TV responsibilities. So I want to ask you, as somebody who's coming through investigative journalism and doing serious work at the time, how do you go from that line of work to <laughs> we're going to put you on the Dan Levitard show? Because <laughs> that is like two different worlds in terms of d doing content, right? You know, it is and it isn't. Um, I actually, I don't think I realized it at the time, and it's kind of taken me a while to even see this, but I actually feel like there's a pretty strong through line, uh, not obviously in the work that I do, right. but in the way I go about it. Um, you know, being an investigative reporter, it's really based on the foundation of asking questions, knowing what you don't know, digging, uh, learning on the fly. And I like to think that I take that same approach now, I've certainly have taken it when it comes to analyzing football of that sort of rigorous studying and research and trying to get better. And then ultimately doing what I did do as a writer, which is 
synthesizing that information and communicating it clearly. Granted, a you know one minute take is not a six thousand word article, right. but I but I do think um, the analysis side of it actually has some similarities. When you got on to when when highly questionable was there and Levitard was there, the one thing like everyone at least anyone I've talked to has always talked about how good you are at delivering commentary in a short amount of time. Like you make it really digestible for the audience to pick up. I've always talked to people and they go, man, she's smart. She's really fun to listen to. He brought out a side of your personality <laughs> though, that I don't know that anybody else would have seen at that time. Maybe you you knew you had it, but they weren't putting you in those spots. How did that relationship even start between the two of you? So, Dan and I were introduced, I want to say 2016, if I remember correctly, by Eric Reidholm, who produces a lot of shows at ESPN, produced Highly Questionable, Around the Horn. And I think we were introduced at a lunch and, um, you know, we were having a very serious conversation and then it just took a weird turn and we just were <laughs> cracking jokes. And he was like, you know, I think you might actually enjoy being a part of my world. And which is, of course, the radio show and TV show. And for me, it was uh, such a pivotal point in my career, like a real turning point, actually, because yeah. I was already doing a little bit of TV. I was already on Around the Horn, but I was very nervous about, one, making mistakes, and two, I think showing any personality or showing that side of myself. And I think Dan's superpower is that he has the ability to bring that out in everyone he encounters because he's so confident in you that you can't help but be confident in yourself. He thinks you're hilarious, so maybe you are hilarious. Right, right. He, Sort of, um, he's almost like, um, I don't know, like a social lubricant or something. Like, and <laughs> so having that experience was really wonderful because it made me less afraid to make mistakes and it made me more confident in being me. What you learned from that that you carry with you today, is it the fact of just being more confident on camera or is it something else? I think so. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and I would say not being afraid to make mistakes. Um, I was so worried and, you know... I think for identity reasons too, um, apprehensive of the scrutiny of getting something wrong, but you can't be an opinionated, opinionator, pardon me, on television if you're afraid of being wrong. Right. And I think once I sort of accepted that I might get some things wrong and I might screw things up, um, my work got a lot better as a result. So I want to talk about your role with NFL Live. What you've done on the show is tremendous. and. Thanks. You know, you look at shows like that in the past, and they've always been dependent on the male former coach, the male former GM, the front office guy. And so it was always this set design. And obviously, the design now is different with your involvement in there, Laura's involvement in there. When you were thinking about joining the show, did any of that come into play where you're thinking like, am I going to be accepted in this position by the audience? Is this going to be the right fit for me professionally? Oh, a hundred percent. Um, really less joining NFL Live and more just kind of changing my job title to NFL analyst. I thought, who am I to not just give opinions on football, but do it alongside former players or coaches, um, and consider them to be peers in that space or colleagues or whatnot, peers in the sense that we're all giving opinions. And obviously we have different roles. Um, and it took me a little bit to become comfortable doing that. And I would say the single biggest reason why I became comfortable is the people that I was working with, the former players in particular who are on NFL Live um, have been not just my biggest allies but and, and cheerleaders in, in every sense, but they do so much behind the scenes that you guys don't see. I mean, people always see on TV, they're bigging up, and I'm talking about, you know, Ryan and Marcus and Dan. 
they're, they're, they're saying, oh, that's a great point or whatever. And, or they're on social supporting me and that's fine. But what they don't see is behind the scenes, the texts, the phone calls, the conversations that we have about football. Um, Laura is so good at facilitating those conversations and figuring out what's interesting because we talk all the time. And, you know, I always say like, uh, I feel like I've been such a given such a gift to be able to pick up the phone and call Dominique Foxworth and ask him about a certain coverage I saw. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like the fact that sometimes those guys will call me and say, hey, can you run the numbers on this? And is this trend holding up? That's just been the biggest confidence boost I could ask for. So it's really what happens behind the scenes that makes me feel comfortable doing that job. What does the day look like in your world? You mentioned all the conversations you guys have. When does it start? Like, how do you guys decide on what's going to lead the show versus segment two? you know, the things that matter most to an audience? I'll say it's an ongoing conversation. We have active group texts, texts, pardon me, that go on all week. Obviously, they're more busy during game days when people notice things. But all week, if somebody says, hey, we should talk about this, or did you see this? Or guys, what do you think about this piece of news? It's an ongoing conversation. And our producer, um, Mark Eisman, is in that text. So he's obviously monitoring it. So is Laura, who's practically a producer herself, honestly. So we're always kind of generating ideas and then of course in the morning um the producers have their own call they'll come to us they'll ask questions about potential topics usually geared around the obvious biggest games and stories in football but um you know we are also kind of sidebarring about all of it and then ultimately when we come together for the show call at 10 a.m every morning everybody's already had a ton of conversations with each other with producers with each other you know other people on the show and so we're all kind of ready to decide as a group what direction we want the conversation to go in. It's not rewriting our takes or, you know, things like that. It's more just like, hey, you said like this on Wednesday, let's talk about it on Thursday. Mm -hmm. And it's a collaborative process um, that's just born of so many conversations, so much talking. I mean, shoot, I, I talked about guys in numbers like Orlovsky was just texting me asking, did you notice this thing with the Packers? And and then I went and I was I was already grabbing stats in the Packers. And I was like, this is actually 100% corroborated by something I grabbed on True Media. And literally, it's like a thousand lights going off in both of our brains. And we just text, 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 text. Um, I His film like breakdowns are like some of my favorite amazing. stuff to watch. I'm like, they should just create 30 minutes of him just breaking down film. I'd watch it. He's really, in some ways, the engine of our show because... I like to think what makes it special, not that other shows don't do this, is instead of like yes or no questions, we're always trying to ask how or why. And that's just who Dan is. He's always asking how, why did this happen? Not just who's under the most pressure, is this team going to make a Super Bowl? But like, why are they under pressure? Why are they struggling? And right. it's amazing to watch, honestly. In this role, you know, you may not see yourself in this capacity, but you're blazing a trail for a lot of people. I'm sure you had to think about some of this when you're going into the role and how this show is changing with you in that analyst spot. But in addition to blazing a trail on NFL Live, you're doing that in general because you pay attention to the industry. There aren't a lot of Asian women in sports media in highly prominent positions. And why that is, I mean, that's for network execs to answer, right? I can't be in their heads. But as it relates to you, that puts you in a unique spot because there are going to be little girls, older women who are in college right now going, hey, I can do that, you know? And so there's a really cool carryover effect. On the other hand, that also can put some pressure on you to feel like, man, I have to succeed. How do you see that? 
You know, I used to feel the pressure a lot, and I used to take all the criticism really to heart. Um, so much so that it would ruin my day. It would ruin my days, honestly. Uh, and over time, I've. It's not that I've become hardened to it or <laughs> terribly more confident or whatever, but I, I've just learned to really set up filters. Literally filters. Like I don't see. It. It's funny. Every now and then I'll reply to a tweet, and I usually regret it. It's like I'm impulse control. But honestly, I only see like one percent of them uh, because of the way I have things set up. Because it's just, it's not good for any of us to see that. Not just women or um, you know Asians or anyone. It's just not healthy, and um, it's a bummer because I, I miss out on seeing some really fun stuff too. I yeah. think, but I, I just think. You have to do it to not just do your job well, but like protect your mental health in a manner of speaking. Yeah. Um, some people are really capable of being of online. I don't know the Kevin Durant's of the world, but <laughs> you just kind of got to know yourself. And I know me and I know that's not who I am. So, um, and also it's high tension that I could be spending listening to people who I know were working, I guess. Right. Um, so, you know, I, I, I've tried to be more deliberate about what I see and kind of what I let infiltrate my thinking. It's funny you bring that up early on when um, I would write things and I would get reactions. I would, you know, read it and go, ah, you know, what, what is this person talking about? Like, it's an opinion. You don't like it, don't read it. Right. And then finally, I was just like, you know, they did create a mute and a block button. I, even though I could spend 10 minutes and argue here, like, <laughs> what is this doing for my well-being right now? It's not helping me. I've got other things. I'd rather read somebody's response who, wants to participate in a productive conversation. So I'm just going to tune it out. And so now I'm kind of like you. I probably miss a lot of things on social that are probably out there, some of them good, some bad. But, you know, I remember when you brought this up, it it just triggered a thought because I remember one time you put on Twitter about, you know, some of the rude and tasteless stuff you've had to deal with. And I, I know a lot of media people who've had to deal with this. And your point was, this is what female journalists have to go through in order to do their jobs. Do you feel it's gotten better since then? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was just chatting with a young woman today in radio who's dealing with hell. And part of the reason I put that out there was uh, people thought, oh, she just wants sympathy. And I was like, it actually is actually kind of annoying when a lot of the criticism I get is for other people defending me. And I'm like, I don't even, I can't control that. I don't know. But right. um, no, I, I put out because I think sometimes, especially with y younger women, they, they do think, oh, this, these people hate me. And it's like, no, they don't hate you. Like they just hate themselves. And I, and I want to be like, look, I literally, the funny thing is too, I get, I get things like that every day, countless. Yep. I call the diversity hire like every day on some platform or in my messages on Instagram or whatever. And it's a bummer, but most of the people who say that, one, obviously they would never say it to you in real life, but also it goes out saying, you know, it, it really is just kind of screaming into the universe and wanting to be heard. And, yep. and it doesn't mean I'm perfect or I'm doing my job great necessarily, just that it's not a reflection of the quality of work. So just to go back to your question, though, I don't feel like it's getting better based on the conversations I have with, with women, especially younger women who do look at it. And it, it's... It, really bums me out. But I, I want to say, you know, I go back to this. It's everyone, though. Like, we all are getting it now. It's It doesn't feel like things it's are headed in the right direction. On one hand, you love to be accessible to people. Like, you know, in the past, when I grew up, I couldn't have connected with Kevin Durant. You know, now yeah. I can if I go on social. But you also, by doing that, although there are a lot, many positives for it, there are also negatives. you get got a lot of people that just want attention and are miserable in their own skin. And so unfortunately, 
they feel by hiding behind a computer, they could say and do whatever they want. And until they're blocked from the existence of social, there's nothing they can do. So let me spin this to in terms of trying to make it better. Is there anything you think an employer can do or a social media company themselves outside of after someone acts up and blocks them, they can do to make it better? You know, I think with the really scary and nasty stuff, there's it is good that, you know, sometimes we just get got up brought up in the context of free speech and, and social media and what should be monitored and policed. And there are things that are like legitimately, you know, not like scary to people. And right. This goes beyond me, of course. And I do think that um it is responsible the, the there is a responsibility for the platforms to watch those things as best they can. But with companies, media companies who employ all of us and, you know, um, being cognizant of what it is like and being careful about what's put out and aware of what a minefield it is sometimes for people is really the most important thing. Having people who work in that space who are familiar with, um, you know, harassment and how to deal with it. It's not easy. It's all kind of new to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, I have felt very supported by ESPN in that regard. Not that I've been like a particular target or anything like that. But um, I think that there's definitely been people at the company who have been really supportive and obviously care about it. Because what's different is, you know, you go back 20, 30 years ago in media, people would send in a letter in the mail, right? Then they mm -hmm. would call the radio station, then they could get to you an email. And sure, you see some of it. Now, a talent's on 24 hours. Like, you're not just inside of your two, three-hour window or your one column you wrote. You're inside, hey, you have this account. I could get to you any time of the day, send you stuff. You might, if you have your notifications on, you're going to be alerted. I always think, you know, especially on the management side, like, in the past, you wouldn't have even had conversations about how are we making sure that we check on our employees' mental health and well-being. Now, as a manager, you have to think about those things because you do a show on TV for an hour a day. And then on top of that, you've got to deal with these people coming at you. Some of it really good, good feedback, but there's a lot of feedback you've got to weather through in that 15, 16 hours when you're not sleeping that could also mess up your day as you alluded to earlier on. It's a cliche, but I always try to remember the expression, don't take criticism from anyone you wouldn't take advice from. And I actually think from, um, a management or production side, being a voice in the ears of people and giving them feedback can actually really outweigh all of those other voices, which are not always, often not in good faith. Um, you know, because the more people who are, whether it's writing or speaking or on TV or whatever, feel like they have a reliable source of feedback, I think that can tune out some of the other noise a bit. Doesn't mean it has to be positive necessarily, right. Right. Um, but just making it clear that, like, hey, you know, Here's what matters. Um, and it's because sometimes that can get lost these days. I'm going to wrap up in a moment with you on something I do with my guests called Rapid Fire. But I want to sure. ask you about Bomani Jones because I just had him on a podcast and he gave a great answer when I asked him about you. I said, you know, tell me about Mina Kimes and Horizon Sports Media and what you attribute it to. And he said, Mina Kimes is a public school kid. And he said that's important <laughs> because she learned that despite having a high IQ, you have to be able to understand and talk to and relate to regular people every day. And as a result, it's helped her build a strong connection with an American sports fan across the country. I'd love to get your thoughts on his assessment and just ask you, 
when you're doing the show, whether it's around the horn, PTI, NFL Live, do you have a mental image in your head of who you're doing the show for? Or are you just present in the issues and topics you're talking about and really just looking at who's ever in front of you? Well, first of all, that's very kind of Bomani, um, who is like such an inspirational person when it comes to speaking in a way that's so true to himself and so intelligent and at such a high level, but also so funny. And then no, trusting that people will come, you know what I mean? Like yep. he's got a very, very successful podcast and, and you know, he's never strayed from his own voice. And I think that's so inspiring because it's such an, a unique voice. There's nobody like him in the world. Um, and one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life, it goes without saying. Uh, but as far as your question of kind of who I view my audiences, um, it, it's not a matter of identity necessarily in age or gender or race or anything like that. I just think of, I guess I'm speaking to myself, honestly, mm-hmm. which is to say, I want somebody who genuinely loves sports, but doesn't take them too seriously. I try to embody that a little bit in my work, which is I really want people to know how much I love it and how much work I'm putting in, but I don't want them to think that I am buying my own bullshit mm-hmm. <laughs> in any sense and, or that I'm not willing to laugh at myself. And I think that's what sports should be, honestly. Like they should be fun. And a lot of times it feels like it gets away from that. And granted, there are topics that transcend sports where they have to get away from that. But for the most part, it is fun. And I really hope that people can see that I'm having fun talking about it. I think they do. And we'll uh, we'll test you on that because I'm going to put you through <laughs> some rapid fire. So okay. bigger celebrity, Lenny or your mom? <laughs> Um, well, it's hard to know because I've shielded Lenny from having his own social media so that I can mine him for content myself. So my mom has more followers, but who's to say Lenny wouldn't have more if he was on. I'll go with my mom though, because she, uh, her star has risen (laughs) pretty rapidly and Lenny's been at it for longer, you know, best and worst professional advice you've been given kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Dan, but Early on, he always told me whenever I would do anything strange or he would say, lean into that, own it. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say, Eric Reidholm gave me a great piece of advice um, in terms of giving opinions when I was so new to that, which he said, don't worry about being right or just talk about what you find interesting. And I've always tried to take that approach when I'm on a show and a, there's a topic whether about basketball, football. What do I find interesting about this story? Mm-hmm. Worst advice. <laughs> <laughs> line my whole eye maybe and wear straight hair. I had some bad makeup. <laughs> no, um, you know, early on I was told I should be interrupting more. And I think there's some truth to that because I was definitely too timid at first, but there's just something so powerful about watching TV and seeing someone listening. I don't know. I, I love seeing two people who are actually listening to each other. All right. So this one, no matter what your answer is, somebody at ESPN's of oh, your no. friends list are not going <laughs> to like the answer. If I ask you to create a 2022 version of ESPN's Mount Rushmore, which means we're excluding the past. You can't put in Stuart Scott, Chris Berman, Keith Olbermann, Dan Patrick, okay? And it's just on the current talent roster. Who are the four faces? Let's be real. Stephen A. Smith is the most entertaining and like he is who he is for a reason, yep. but I'll do a, a, like of a, a personal one to me. Um, okay. I'll start with Laura Rutledge, who I believe is one of the best hosts I've ever seen in action. Just incredible, incredible at her job. Dominique Foxworth, who is, um, 
just so freaking smart and funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a really, really special human in that regard. I'm not going to do anyone else on NFL Live just because right. I love all those guys equally. So I know this is kind of cheating. Okay, I'm going to leave out Bo, even though he does work at ESPN. Yep. I already said a lot of nice things about him. I'll go L. Duncan, who I think is just an absolute superstar. Just riveting and smart and like talented at everything. It's actually pretty annoying how good she is at everything. You've got room for one more. I'll put Pablo on there because he's he's a good pal of mine too, and I think he's done a great job with the Daily Podcast, and he's just so fun to do make content with. So for those scoring at home, Laura Rutledge, <laughs> Dominique Foxworth, L. Duncan, Pablo Torre. All right, so next one. What's better, your Southern accent or your Sean Connery impersonation? You said worse. No, what's better? Your, oh, better. Your oh, southern oh accent God, or your... they're both so bad. <laughs> oh, wait, can I go back and add Bill Barnwell to the Mount Rushmore too? Yeah, you can throw I that. Just, we'll we'll, just, we'll make room so for good. Bill. Okay, um, I, I guess my southern accent because the Sean Connery one is like actually offensive. That was hilarious when you were talking so about bad. the uh, the Nestle story. <laughs> the southern I'm accent. so bad at accents. All right, here's the final one. More likely to happen... By 2030, I'm asking you to be like Nostra Kimes here, okay? Dan Levitard and ESPN reunite, or Mina Kimes holds a position inside of an NFL front office? Um, I'll go Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't think I'll probably. I just, that'd be hard to imagine. Um, I love working on this side of things, so. It's cool that people bring that up, though. And I think, you know, the more you continue to show your knowledge and your passion for the game, obviously those conversations are going to continue to creep up. And it's a, it's a good problem. It means people love what you're doing, talking about football, and you obviously wouldn't be in that spot if you weren't really good at it. So enjoy it while, uh, cause you've mentioned earlier in this conversation, you know, you got plenty of people who tell you you're not good at it, but <laughs> there are a lot of people who like what you're doing right now in that position. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the Jason Barrett Podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to this show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeart, Amazon, YouTube, or wherever you consume podcasts. And to stay in touch with Jason, follow him on Twitter at SportsRadioPD or read his columns on BarrettSportsMedia.com.